Well, I gave you what might have seemed a bit of a grim account of the sociology of the state as a predatory institution. But that's really only part of the story. As one of the uh, uh, questioners afterwards pointed out, that there are, in fact, social coordination problems. And sometimes governments help us to solve those. They do provide uh, some services. I personally hate being invaded, for example. <laughs> and if our government keeps other people from invading us, that's a, uh, a good thing. Uh, it's also the case that the story of freedom is very substantial, the story of taming power and bringing power under the rule of law. I read that uh, quote last night from John Locke, a very important one about freedom, that where there is no law, there is no freedom. The worst thing is to be subject to the arbitrary power of any person or group of persons. And instead, bringing power under law is a very important precondition for liberty. So I'm going to tell a little bit of a story. I'll skip quite lightly over the surface in some areas, go deeper in some others, about the historical perspective on liberty. But I'd like to start with a, an orientation for what history is about. History is an important discipline for lots and lots of reasons. Bolingbroke famously said that history was philosophy teaching by examples. That's one way to think about it. History is just personally fun. We like stories. People will remember stories rather than abstract principles. And historical narratives are easy to remember, and they engage the mind. We are social beings. We're very interested in the lives of other people and stories about how they lived. It helps us to understand the institutions that we have today. That's one of the things I'm going to focus on is institutional development. If you understand the context within which an institution emerged, you will better understand that institution. Similarly with ideas. Ideas are like tools of the mind. If we know the problem set to which this was offered as a tool, we will better understand that tool, or that set of ideas. But there's one other purpose that has now fallen into disfavor, and that is the moral function of history. Tacitus, a great Roman historian, pointed out that my purpose is not to relate at length every motion, but only such as were conspicuous for excellence or notorious for infamy. This I regard as history's highest function, to let no worthy action be uncommemorated and to hold out the reprobation of posterity as a terror to evil words and deeds. It is important also to remember the great human beings of the past who struggled for justice, who struggled for freedom, who struggled for law, and also those who opposed them, the villains and the tyrants as well. Tacitus in his great book portrays, which begins with the reign of Tiberius, uh, portrays the way in which Tiberius is corrupted by power and turns into a kind of a monster by the end of his life. And I believe that it was this story played an especially important role in the development of Lord Acton's theory of history. There's the one thing that everyone, almost everyone, in an educated circle can quote from John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg Acton, the... Um, uh, known as Lord Acton, First Regis Professor of Modern History at Cambridge University. That was from a letter to Bishop Creighton, which he said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He also pointed out that in history, almost all the great men are evil men. They are the ones who left behind the monuments and so on to 
their activities and power because they were the most rapacious killers and murderers. So one thing that I hope will come out of this is an understanding of the evolution of the institutions, the problems to which they were solutions, and how precious they are. And then the other one, to remember some of the great figures in this struggle for freedom and the rule of law. Now, another little bit of background about my approach to the philosophy of history. I'm very skeptical of philosophies of history. Big picture, history was inevitable. Whatever we had now had to happen. This is not true. The historical record is full of accidents, things that could have been otherwise, if one person had acted differently on a certain day, if a flood hadn't happened, this, that, and the other. We might be living very, very, very different worlds. I'll talk about a couple of those crucial turning points. So I'm very skeptical. Nonetheless, I think we can say a couple of things that are somewhat sweeping in general. Uh, about the propitious conditions for the emergence of liberty. Now, I say propitious. That means favorable. It doesn't mean necessary, absolute, or sufficient, but merely propitious. And the first is some idea of the higher law. That is to say, an understanding law isn't just power. There's something above those who exercise power. All rulers would like to tell you, my word is the law. I said it. That's the law. There's nothing higher. And a culture that accepts that is unlikely to develop a theory or practice of liberty. But some idea there's a higher law. And this has, in our civilization, two expressions we can associate with two cities. So make it convenient. Jerusalem, which we associate with revealed religion, and particularly with the insight of the Hebrew nation, if you will, about God. This is a religious formulation of the idea that God is transcendent to God's creation, which means God is not another thing in the world. Now, many other religions had associated in earlier periods this river was a god, that mountain, and so on and so forth. And the Jews have a very different idea, often associated with nomadic peoples, that there's one God, and that God is not just another thing in the world a stone or a mountain or a tree or a lake. That means that there's some higher law. And as you see in the Old Testament, as the Christians call it, the uh, articulation of this, when in the story, when Moses' people leads the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt toward the promised land that he is not allowed to enter, there's a period in Sinai, he goes up to the mountain, and has some interaction with God that transcends normal human understanding. So I like to think he goes to burningbush.com and gets some kind of a download of some sort. And when he's up there receiving the law, uh, God says, behold, this people, it is a stiff-necked people. Why? Because while Moses is absent, they go to Aaron and they say, make us gods like all the other nations of the world. We need gods. So he says, gather your gold, your earrings, your jewelry, your bangles, melts it and makes of it a golden calf. And they worship and dance and pray before it and sacrifice. And he says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God sees this. He is most displeased. 
And he says, therefore, let, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. But of you, I will, Moses, I'll make a great nation. Which means you'll have many, many, many children. And your children will have many, many children. A whole nation will come from you. But he will destroy the people of Israel. Something happens uniquely in this story. I think it makes it a uniquely Jewish story. It's a bit unexpected. Moses argues with God. It's not what you would normally expect. He says, wait, let's talk about this. And somehow he convinces God to repent of his decision. Now, this is a theological matter. People have discussed what does that mean. But there's a very important message. Don't do this again. The Lord repented of the evil he thought to do to his people. What it meant was this piece of gold is not God. God is somehow transcendent to this created thing. That has great political significance. Because what is one of the greatest sins one could commit? To say, I am your God. For a mere human being to claim divine status. Well, what is it that rulers normally like? They like to say we're gods. The rulers of Egypt, the pharaohs, are gods. Later, Caesar is deified, considered to be a god, and so on. To have this special divine status above the rest of us. But in fact, even the people of Israel will be judged by this higher law. So that's a theological formulation. And by the way, different versions of it can be found also in different religions. It's not uniquely Abrahamic. You find it also in, uh, obviously, those religions descended from the Abrahamic faith, so Christianity and um, Islam and others, and in Hindu tradition and so on. The other philosophical formulation, we think of the city of Athens, and that is the philosophical study of the world. Philosophy we now associate with just a tiny branch of what used to be called philosophy means the love of wisdom, thinking, studying, learning. That's what philosophy is about. Now we mean it's just a set of courses you take in college and then you're done with it. You don't have to philosophize anymore. It used to be what we call science was called natural philosophy, for example. And the word science is a very recent term for what was called for a long time natural philosophy. Aristotle, for example, thought we could study things and see how they work. He, if you read Aristotle's works on the motion of animals, on the nature of the soul, he was interested in everything. He wanted to know how turtles walk. Why do fish swim? How do things propel themselves through space? Why are there eggs? All of these important questions. And he wanted to understand the regularity of how the world works so we could grasp it by human reason, experience and reason. Also in human affairs, how is it that cities flourish? Why are some rich and some poor? He wants to develop a political science, a science of, of the political animal. So on Logon, the animal who talks and who lives in cities, which is politeia in Greek. In doing so, he understood that there were some principles that were universal. And he even makes a really radical claim about the essential and inessential features of a human being, consistent with his approach to logic. To be pale or dark is not an essential characteristic of a human being, usually badly translated as white and black. That's actually not correct. But in the Greek, to be pale or dark, because he knew people come in all different ranges of colors. And these are accidental features. What was essential was to be a rational animal, an animal who can talk, which is a characteristic of a human being. And he even discusses uh, 
this question of fire, and he makes a little joke for the Greeks. The Greeks had two kinds of creatures in the world who look like us. There are Greeks and, what's the other type? Barbarians. Greeks and barbarians. They're called barbarians because they can't talk. When you go up and speak Greek to one of them, they say, bar, 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 bar. So they're called barbaroi. Doesn't mean that they're barbers or they shave or anything. Barbaroi. They say, bar, 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 bar. They're unable to talk. And people made a big distinction between the Greeks and the Hellenes and the barbarians. Well, he pointed out rather subtly, fire does not burn one way in Greece and another way in Persia. It's just fire. Suggestion is also just human nature, whether it's Persian or Greek. He didn't deny there were distinctions between Persians and Greeks, but these were somehow not essential. So we can understand the natural law. Now, sometimes people say, and this is a particularly dumb form of discourse found in the United States, uh, that natural law necessarily is religious. Actually, it's not. When Justice Thomas was nominated to the Supreme Court, and he had said he believed in natural law, he was said, he's for, he's for religion and the law. Well, think about it. Religion is supernatural law. Natural law means not religious law. It may be compatible with it, but it's natural law from the study of nature. What is natural? And the most highly developed branch of the modern natural law that persists with us is known as the science of economics. If you impose price controls, you're going to get shortages. If the market price is $10 and you impose a legal price of $6, expect shortages. It's not magic. That is the natural law. That is what is going to happen. We could propound all sorts of other elements of this. Modern economics is natural law. <clears throat> so that how societies organize are not just matters of whim or goodwill or having wise rulers who are nice or godly. It's about incentives and it's about cause and effect. We can study these things scientifically. If you print lots of paper, lots and lots and lots and lots of paper, it will fall in value. It doesn't matter whether it's in Zimbabwe or China or Argentina or the United States or Germany or Hungary or any place else. That's what happens. And it doesn't matter whether politicians claim otherwise. And then second, the idea that law can be both discovered and made. Now, the theory of legal positivism that I identified as a contemporary foundation of state sovereignty as a juridical a body of, of thought says the state posits the law, the state creates the law, the state imposes the law. John Austin's famous definition of a law is a command of a superior with the power to enforce obedience. But what's puzzling is that doesn't describe a lot of law, like contract law, property law, family law. Where's the superior with the power to compel obedience? Many of these things emerge over time. And in fact, people obey them because it's convenient to do so, not because there's a guy with a big stick waiting to whack you on the head, but because it's a way for us to order our affairs in a cooperative manner, and defection is very costly. You'll be excluded from the circle of borrowers and lenders, and so on and so forth. 
If in the United States you fail to pay your car registration fee, you will be arrested, you'll be taken in prison, you'll be humiliated, you'll be strip searched, your rights will be, and your dignity will be taken from you. If in contrast you fail to pay your credit card bill, private lenders are not so brutal and savage. They just give you a bad credit report and then you don't get any more credit from anyone else. That turns out to be a pretty effective incentive to encourage people to obey the law and the rules of the communities of borrowers and lenders. Laws are not merely made, they're discovered. Common law legal procedures were originally about saying, what is the law here? How do people resolve their disputes? And if law is discovered and not merely made, it can also be applied to those who enforce the law. That's a very important point. The positivists argue that the state is above the law as a sovereign. But if you believe that law can be discovered, then the state itself can be subject to law. That is a very important liberal approach as opposed to the statist approach to law. Law is imposed, the state is above the law, versus law is also discovered. And therefore, the discoverers, the implementers, and the enforcers are themselves subject to it. Now, as I mentioned, uh, John Locke on this, a long quote. I just want to mention the key element about what liberty is. He contrasts freedom is not, as we are told, a liberty for every man to do what he lists. That is to say, list is old-fashioned English, means to be inclined, means what you want to do. He's referring to the advocates of absolutism who mocked the liberal idea, said, oh, freedom. Everybody just does anything he wants. Locke says, no, that's license. If you just want to rape a person or take their stuff, that's not freedom. That would be a state of license and lawlessness. <clears throat> he says, who could be free when every other man's humor might domineer over him? But it is a liberty to dispose and order as he lists his person, actions, possessions, and his whole property within the allowance of those laws under which he is, and therein not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but freely follow his own. So the key element was not being subject to arbitrary power. Very important element in the liberal theory of freedom. F.A. Hayek in his book, The Constitution of Liberty, really this is central to his understanding of liberty. Now property has a very wide scope. It means in modern English, just my stuff, like this is my property. But for Locke, and even up to the period of the American Revolution, would have sounded very strange to say this is my property. They would have said, I have a property in this object. Property referred to life, liberty, and estate, which I call by the general name property. He has other formulations. Life, liberty, health, limbs, and estate. If someone damages your health by poisoning you or chops off a hand or restrains you in some way in a cage, they violated your property, that which is proper to you, that to which you have a legal, legitimate claim. Not just your stuff, but your freedom, your life, your body are your property. Now the question of how to attain liberty, this ability to exercise the freedom to do what you want with what is yours and not be subject to the arbitrary will of another is a really hard one. Because in order to limit power, we have to find an offsetting power. So let's start the story in ancient Sumeria. And one of the oldest written accounts we have, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which we have in a number of different languages from this period, Old Sumerian, Old Babylonian. And it tells the story of a great king. This is Gilgamesh here. This is a propaganda 
carving, I suppose you'd say. It, can anyone tell what he has in each hand? Lions. These are not house cats, <laughs> right? He has a lion in each hand. So this is telling you he's a powerful man, very, very powerful man. He was powerful, superb, knowledgeable, and expert. Gilgamesh would not leave the young girls alone, as the French say, quelle surprise. The daughters of warriors, the brides of young men. In fact, as it explains quite explicitly in the story and the poem, uh, he would, on the night of the wedding, he slept with the bride. And of course, we're all adults here. We know he didn't sleep with them. He didn't say, oh, I'm so sleepy. Let's, let's sleep now. He raped these girls. So he got to have sex with all the pretty girls in the city of Lagash and humiliate their husbands. So it's a dual victory that he was alpha male in this troop. It says the gods often heard their complaints. Obviously, they didn't like this. So the gods hear, and one of the gods, Aruru, fashions an, a new man, a natural man named Enkidu. She takes some clay and some tufts of grass and fashions them together out in the forest, in the fields rather, to a new man who goes to the city and blocks Gilgamesh at the door of the uh, house where he's going to uh, rape this girl, and he would not let him enter. And they fight. Neither one can overpower the other. And then they leave the city, and they have many great adventures. It's a very rich and interesting poem. But it's the first story of checks and balances. To be subject to the arbitrary power of this powerful person is, is unbearable for people. Well, how do you stop it? You need some other power to check it. And that's really the origin of the ideas that we have in the American Constitution, of the checks and balances among the different branches of government, of institutions such as juries and states and so on, that you have to have power to check power. You can't have all the power concentrated in one set of hands. In about the same region, a little bit later, the first story of liberty, identifiable as such, um, I mentioned actually, uh, it was Uruk is the city of Gilgamesh, not Lagash. Lagash is where Urukagina becomes the leader there, and he establishes the freedom of the citizens. They had been subjected to all kinds of arbitrary power, confiscation of their land, monopolies by various groups, monopolizing trade in salt and timber and so on, a mercantilistic, cronyist state of a sort. And he leads a great rebellion against this and establishes this freedom so that the property, the house, and the land of the poor and the rich alike were secure from being seized, and each person was to be equal before the law. And there we have Amaji. It's the first written expression in any language of liberty. And it does mean liberty, as, as we understand it as modern libertarians, individual personal freedom. I did quintuple check on that before I had that tattooed on my body. It's one of those things you do. I don't want to be like one of these kids with some Asian word on backwards uh, that says water or something, but looks cool. Uh, so I made sure I went to the Department of Sumerology at the Utvash Lorantudamanya Jatem in Budapest, and I said, tell me what this, everything you know about this word, and it means liberty. 
as an interesting point, it's derived, it's a compound, it means return to the mother. There's an interesting question why return to the mother would mean liberty. And one theory among Sumerologists, that's what they do in their Sumer vacations, <laughs> is to ask why, and it was a matriarchal society, so the, the family descent was traced through the mother, which is uncommon today for a variety of reasons. Patriarchal societies have become dominant, so most people trace family through the father, the father's name. At that time, it was through the mother, and if you were a, a slave and liberated, you returned to your family, which meant returning to the mother. It's one theory that seems quite plausible what, why return to the mother would mean individual liberty. But it's the first story we have of a tax revolt, a libertarian revolution, unfortunately later overcome and conquered by uh, King Sargon, which is a particularly ominous and menacing sounding name, uh, the Akkadian king who conquers them. We can go relatively nearby, and there's the story from the first book of Samuel in chapter 8, of when the people of Israel, of Israel demand a king. And they go and they say to their great judge, your sons do not walk in your ways. They have become corrupted. So they didn't have a king. They had judges. We need a king. And he prays. The Lord says, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. And then there's a long description of what will happen, the manner of the king that shall reign over you. And it's pretty long. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself for his chariots to be his horsemen. Some shall run before his chariots. He will take your daughters to make them into cooks, perfumers, bakers, and White House interns. And you shall cry out in that day because of the king whom you have chosen, but the Lord will not hear you. It's a terrible warning of being subject to kings. And it is quoted over and over for thousands of years. This very passage from 1 Samuel 8 is very important in Thomas Paine's book, Common Sense, that led to the Declaration of Independence of the American Colonies. He says, this is the way of a king. We can skip forward a little. We're going a little bit more west now as we proceed to the rise of the tremendous flourishing of Greek civilization. In about 500 BC, Athens in particular reaches a very high level of wealth and personal freedom. They trade, manufacturing and trading, a spectacular efflorescence of human culture. They go to the seas and trade. And if you look at the coastline of Greece and the very rocky soil, you can see why they become a maritime nation and go all over the Aegean and the Mediterranean, learning from other people, adopting uh, ideas from elsewhere. They're twice invaded by the Persians. The first invasion under Darius, and then the second under Xerxes, and these astonishing victories of the Greeks of the mainland uh, against these huge might of the Persians. And there comes then a discussion, why? What are we fighting for? The Persians offer actually quite reasonable terms. If you're going to be conquered by somebody, the Persians are about the least bad or the best to be conquered by. Because they're quite civilized. They say, look, here's the deal. We'll put a military garrison and a governor here. We'll subject you to taxes that are not too onerous. You can pay them. Otherwise, we're not going to really mess with you. If you fight us, we will exterminate you. And to be defeated in the ancient world was terrible. 
one of the reasons why the certain kind of collectivism of the ancient city-states, you had to know how to fight in military formation because if you lose, what will happen to you and your city and family is unthinkable. All of the women and girls are going to be raped, led off into slavery. The boys will often be castrated to be servants in the homes of the rich or sent off to die in the mines. The men will be sent off to the silver mines, and your city is wiped out. That's what it meant to lose a war at that time. And yet they fight. And they ask why. And there's this tremendous poetic flourishing. When we think poetry, we think stuff that rhymes. It means at the time, all kinds of literature, writing, discussion. What is freedom? What is justice? And from this you get such works as the Oresteia, about the emergence of law. You get Antigone on the idea of the higher law, and so on. And a great deal of discussion about what freedom is. What were we fighting for? We were fighting for independence. We are fighting for our freedom. What does that mean? Later, this theoretical discussion of freedom attains another level, and the great conflict between Sparta and Athens, the Peloponnesian War between their two leagues or alliances. Uh, almost all philosophers since then have favored the Spartans. And indeed, Socrates is clearly favorable to the Spartans, as is Plato. Aristotle, a bit more complicated. <clears throat> Rousseau loves the Spartans. Almost all political theorists and philosophers have preferred Sparta. Why? Organized. They didn't have property rights. They didn't have trade and commerce. They didn't have any of those awful merchants and business people. They were a unified state with one purpose. And that one purpose was war. Athens was messy. All these different people, people came from all over the world to live there. They had resident foreigners, what we would call green card holders in America. They're called metics in Greece. And some of the most significant figures in Athenian history were not Athenians, Aristotle being one of them. He was from Stagira, so he's often called the Stagorite. In ancient literature, when you see reference to the Stagorite, it always means Aristotle of Stagira. And even, uh, for instance, uh, uh, Kephalos, one of the important figures in Plato's Republic, is not an Athenian. He's the one who holds the dinner party to which Socrates is invited. They were merchants. They made a lot of money. Their women were notoriously independent. You don't hear anything about Spartan women other than the famous statement of the Spartan mother who, when told, as soldiers return, they say, your two sons were killed in battle. And she says, did I ask that question? The question is, did we win? Not interested in her sons. Well, she want to know, did we win? Right? That's the only time Spartan women show up, is moments like that. And of course, the famous thing that a Spartan mother said to her sons, come back with your shield or on it. On it being dead, uh, carried as a litter. Whereas Athenian women hold court they're intellectuals. The teacher of Socrates was a woman, Diotima. It's a very different social order with much more personal freedom. I don't want to romanticize it. Women did not have equal rights with men. They were not political beings as men were. And there were lots of slaves. Not everyone was a free person. But compared to the other social orders, a much higher degree of personal freedom and market economy and organization. Our colleague. Uh, Andrew Colson here wrote a wonderful book on the history of education, 
He says, yes, most philosophers favored the Spartans, few, almost none, the Athenians. What did we get from the Athenians? Let's see, literature, drama, comedy, poetry, uh, astronomy, arithmetic, uh, geometry, uh, commercial insurance, architecture, of course, philosophy, logic, this is a long, long list. And from the Spartans, we got the names of a lot of American high school football teams. <laughs> That's the, their contribution to modern civilization, the fighting Spartans, and so on. And Pericles puts it very nicely in the funeral oration from Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, contrasting them. Our city is open to the world. We do not have periodic de deportations. This is quite relevant to America today, by the way. We are open to the world. We discuss things publicly. We don't spy on each other. Well, no longer true here, and so on. It's a beautiful statement of the freedom of the Athenians contrasted to the slavery of the Spartans. We could skip forward, we're keeping moving west a bit, uh, to the rise of the Roman Republic. About 509 BC, the monarchy, Tarquin the Proud, the last monarch, was overthrown. Semi-mythical figure. Uh, apparently, his uh, son, Tarquin Sextus, had raped a um, Lucretia, a noblewoman, and the people, the noble families, overthrew him. And they established a respublica, a public thing. And the Roman constitution that emerges out of this is an enormously complicated body of laws, offices, powers, and immunities that make it very difficult for anyone to get power, absolute power. So they replace the king with two consuls, each elected jointly with joint power and joint veto power for one year. And subsequently, all Roman years are named after the two consuls who had power. Later, the office of the tribunes of the plebeians, who protect the plebeian interests, is a, a different class, if you will, from the patricians. Uh, there are quaestors and praetors, all these different offices, and the senate, which means the old men. It means the elders, the body of the elders, former office holders, who then constitute the body of the senate. That lasts a very long time, but finally is destroyed. And one might say, well, OK, the, enough for that. It did last longer than the American Republic has lasted so far. So we should always keep these things in mind. You could date its ending with what I mentioned uh, last night, the suicide of Cato the Younger in 46 BC after the defeat uh, in the Battle of Thapsus. He had led the last Republican forces uh, from uh, uh, Pharsalus, after their disastrous defeat under the leadership of Pompey, he had led uh, his legions into North Africa through the horrible desert and then to uh, Utica and unfortunately allowed the army to be led by a former consul who outranked him. He believed in the Constitution. So he said, let him lead the army. This was a mistake. And then uh, as Caesar was advancing, he committed suicide. And as Caesar is reported to have said, Caesar, he says, Cato, you have grudged me, begrudged me, you're pardoning you. <coughs> and that was a terrible thing. Caesar was going to pardon him in order to defang him, if you will. <coughs> this represents really the end of the old republic 
and what comes after this we later call the empire. Uh, we can talk later about how those are related. But this constitutional <coughs> experience was very important and formative for thought on constitutional law. Constitutions are about constraining power as much as you can. Make it difficult. In a way, it's what we call in Washington gridlock. And all the statists complain bitterly about gridlock. Why do you need these hearings? Oh, please, just get the job done. But constitutionalism is about gridlock. That's the point of constitutionalism, is to have gridlock. So you don't do crazy things on the spur of the moment. Very simple example. Our Senate in the United States, designed substantially after the Roman Senate, you had to be older, 35 years of age. The House is younger, 25. The House is elected every two years. The whole body is supposed to represent the people. The Senate, representing the states, is elected in staggered terms. Every two years, one-third of the Senate are elected. Washington's favorite quip to Thomas Jefferson, possibly apocryphal, but widely believed to have been a, uh, authentic, when Jefferson said, why do you need this upper body with this ability to delay stuff? And he had poured his hot coffee into the saucer. And Washington says, why did you pour your hot coffee into the saucer? He said, to let it cool. He said, exactly. That was the point. And we saw in our lifetimes an example of this. When George I was president of the United States of America, so George Herbert Walker Bush, not George W. Bush, there was a big campaign, some of you may remember, to go after what were called drug kingpins, drug dealers, and execute them. And the drug czar at the time, a particularly, in my opinion, disreputable person, Secretary Bennett, uh, proposed that we have public beheadings of drug dealers, that we cordon off areas with the military, no one gets in or out, and do apartment-to-apartment -apartment searches for drugs, and then we would behead them. And I remember the news conference, and he was asked, or I'll translate this into English in a moment, he was asked the following question, uh, Secretary, aren't you concerned about the ethical implications of such a stand? Translation into English, are you totally crazy? <laughs> right, that's what that means, Washington talk and, and English. Are you nuts? His response, so memorable, I taught ethics at the University of Texas. This isn't a problem. Oh, thank God. I'm happy now that we had a, a professor who taught an ethics course. Of course he could cut people's heads off. Uh, these crazy proposals, not the beheading, but these additional death penalties, passed the House. Every member of the House was terrified they were going to be attacked as weak on drugs or pro-drug in the upcoming election, and it failed in the Senate because two-thirds of the senators did not have to face election and this kind of pot wacky popular sentiment. And that's what the Senate was for, and it was drawn from this experience. We also have a great deal of the learning of the ancient world is owed to this man, Marcus Tullius Cicero, one of the greatest orators. He was not a military man. He was not a soldier. He believed in the power of words, and he articulated early versions of many libertarian ideas of the natural law that came to the modern world because he wrote the most perfect Latin. He set the standard for the Latin language, and so people copied his works over and over, and consequently, 
Some of his books survived, including his extensive correspondence, especially with his friend Atticus. <clears throat> he was uh, then uh, murdered by the order of Mark Antony and Octavian. His head was cut off, and his hand that is written, had written the speeches against Mark Antony displayed in the forum, and Mark Antony's wife, Fulvia, went up, spat on the head, pulled out the tongue, and jabbed her silver pin through it, that he would never speak again. It was such a powerful order. And his ideas from the ancient world really informed modern libertarian thought to a very substantial degree, ideas of natural law, natural justice, and a society ruled by persuasion rather than brute force, which is what he was struggling for. Now, that classical world does come to an end. We get glimmers of it, texts and books and things, archaeological treasures that come through to the modern era. But the classical world came to an end. And Europe changes dramatically. I'm going to skip the dark ages, if you will, the decline of urban civilization, the decline of, of writing, literacy, and move forward to what happens that is remarkable uh, in the a modern world, and that is the separation of church and state. Christian faith that had spread so rapidly throughout Europe, and then something uh, really astonishing happens. And that is the development of the church as a body independent of the state. It's not quite what we call separation of church and state today, but it is the foundation for it. In 1073, a German monk named Hildebrand, of no noble birth, but extremely clever man and very ambitious, rises to become the leader of the church, Pope Gregory VII, he's called. And at this time, the church has begun to fill the space of the Roman Empire in many ways. So the Roman Empire had collapsed. You have later, we talk about the growth of the Holy Roman Empire, the German nation, the 800, the translation of the Roman Imperium to the German nation under Carolus Magnus, or Charlemagne, as he's known. But since there's no longer a Roman emperor in Rome after the year 476, when Augustus, Romulus Augustus Triumphus was expelled by Odovacar, one of the German generals, there's no longer a Roman emperor in Rome. There's a Roman emperor in Ravenna and one in Constantinopolis, or Istanbul today. But there's a Christian bishop in Rome, and he becomes more and more powerful. He begins to fill that space of the former Roman imperium, including many titles. The pontiff, for example, is an old Roman pagan title <clears throat> of a kind of a priest. <clears throat> Julius Caesar was the pontifex maximus. And his, the other one, I think, is personally the most lovely title of the Pope, the Universal Primate, which I always thought just sounds kind of impressive to be a universal primate. This man becomes Pope, and he launches a campaign for the freedom of the church, the church to be independent of what we would call the state, although it's early to talk of the state in the sense that Max Weber discusses it, but political and military bodies. The church is now going to become an independent, self-governing body. He issued in 1075 a document, the status of which is a bit unclear. It's called the Dictates of the Pope, Dictatus Pape. It's like a laundry list of, of statements of the power of the Pope and the power of the Emperor. 
and he sends it to Henry IV of Saxony, or it comes into his hands. It's very radical. He alone is to be called universal. He has the right to endow bishops with their authority within the uh, Christian church. He has the power to absolve subjects of loyalty to their rulers. That's very subversive and radical doctrine. At this time, there's something called the investiture crisis, which has to do with the bishops of Germany. Who has the power to say, you're the bishop now, and you get all this land, and so on? It has to do with a lot of money and a lot of wealth, because Europe is now emerging from this dark ages. People are clearing land, doing politically incorrect things like killing wolves, which had rampaged all throughout Europe. And the local peasants just hated being eaten by wolves. So they would kill them off, cleared land, and so on. Rebirth of urban civilization. <clears throat> so that, and the church in the process is very active in this and becoming extremely rich. So if I'm the emperor and I get to appoint the bishops, I get to control all that wealth. And Gregory says, we're going to put a stop to that. And he insists he has the right to appoint the bishops, that that's a matter for the Bishop of Rome, not for the German emperor. Henry IV sends a letter that is astonishingly insulting. It starts out, to I, Henry, king by the grace of God, to Hildebrand. Can you hear the insult? Not Gregory, his papal name, but Hildebrand. That would be like um, uh, calling former Pope Benedict Ratzinger, or even saying, hey, Ratzinger. It's not respectful. And he, re he rebuts the claims, lays out his argument, and basically tells the pope to go to hell. It's pretty unambiguous. Well, ultimately, the Pope wins this, and the Emperor has to journey to Canossa and ask forgiveness and readmission to the church. Now, it's not just because of his great persuasive power. There's also a Norman army camped nearby because the previous popes had supported the Norman claim to the throne of England, and they are very good at keeping ledgers of who owed favors to whom. So there's a Norman army to sort of camping nearby, like a Boy Scout camp. Uh, <clears throat> this played some substantial role in uh, the emperor's decision. But what it did was it established that there's the church and the institutions that later become the state, and they interpenetrate. Neither one has a territorial monopoly. Neither one is supreme over the other, which means power is divided. And if one is oppressing me, I could go to the other one. If the local duke or baron is oppressing me, I could go to the church and say, please help me. If the church is oppressing me, I could go to the local baron and say, help me. And in this crack within power, freedom starts to emerge. You have one power able to check the other. And then Europe develops an astonishingly decentralized and fragmented political order, most decentralized on the whole Eurasian landmass, with hundreds and hundreds of different little political jurisdictions but unified within one cultural space that had relatively high ease of movement and a common legal culture. The emergence of independent cities, or communes as they're called, is extremely significant. The whole idea of civil society emerges from this, from the Latin term civitas for a city. And this principle of the German cities 
City air makes you free after a year and a day. If you were a serf, you ran away from your uh, uh, lord, and you got into a city, and you could stay in the city for a year and a day. I like to think of it going from one Starbucks to the next, from some medieval city. You became a free person. City air makes you free. And by the way, we should be aware there's a similar phrase that was used to mock people and deprive them of their freedom. And that was what the National Socialists put over the slave labor camps. Not Stadtluft macht frei, but Arbeit macht frei. Work will make you free. In the context of European history and their victims, this was mocking them. Not city air, but work will really free you. So this was a form of humiliation and mockery. The National Socialists or Nazis were very, very good at forms of humiliating and degrading other people, including forcing them, of course, to march over the uh, desecrated headstones from the Jewish cemeteries that were looted and destroyed. And they forced them to march over them. They're just so full of symbolic uh, the symbols and of hatred and humiliation. We get a lot of important institutions emerging out of this. <clears throat> and the growth of a movement from birth, your position society being determined by birth to one determined by contract, by free agreement. You move to another place and you make contracts with people and you create your life through voluntary association. So I was in India earlier this year for the Asia Liberty Forum, a libertarian event uh, in New Delhi. And we had a most interesting speech by a Dalit leader, intellectual. Dalit is a term used to be called untouchable, but that is not a polite term in India. So normally people are called Dalits. And he talked about how the market has liberated people. So you're not just born to this terrible degraded status of having no rights and, and no personhood. But he did say when he talks to young Dalits, he said, if you want to change your life in modern India, you have to move away from your village and take another occupation and create your own life through choice, which is now possible because of the opening of market economy in India. It was, and as he pointed out, Dalit people have seen more social advance since 1991 than they did in the preceding 3,000 years because of opening to the market economy. Civil society emerges from this. We get these two wonderful words in English. I mentioned English has two words for almost everything. You can be defenestrated if you're an upper-class person or thrown out the window if you're a low-class person. So we see the Anglo-Saxon and Latin. Elegant people are defenestrated and bums are thrown out the window. We get from Latin civitas civil. And civil means civil society, society that emerged in these cities, but it also characterizes a mode of behavior. Civil society is one that is respectful of other people. A civil society is civil. If you go to England, you'll see English mothers, when they discipline their unruly children, they have two words that are immensely rich in meaning. They say, be civil. Be civil. Doesn't mean be friendly or happy. Respect other people. Don't take their stuff. Don't hit other people. Don't cheat them. Be respectful of other people. But then, from the German word, for a city with a wall, it comes from a burg, which means a fortified place. We get bürgerlich, which means a burger is a citizen in German. 
And all these names like Hamburg, which is not the city of hams, but it's, it is Hamburg. Pittsburgh, not the city that is the pits, lovely place. Hillsboro, and of course, bourgeois, thanks to the French who find that they have a genetic defect, makes it impossible to pronounce German words. So they took bürgerlich and made it bourgeois and comes back into English. And the oldest American representative assembly is the House of Burgesses, very deep roots in this history of self-governing civil societies with city councils and mayors and complex forms of organization. At about the same time as this reformation of the church called the Gregorian Reformation, the investiture crisis, the formation of the independent cities, you also get a constitutional movement in Europe. These are happening at about the same time, overlapping, of written charters of privileges and immunities. So Anglo-Saxon tradition, we think about Magna Carta, which is, by the way, much more important in America than in England. If you go to the great field where Magna Carta was, was signed, and there's this wonderful monument. Look at the base of who built it, American Bar Association. Uh, this is actually quite significant, that it was the American colonists who said, these are our rights as English subjects. You can see from Article 39 something that some two elements that end up in the American Constitution. No free man shall be taken, imprisoned, or disseized, which means having your estate taken from you, outlawed, banished, or in any way destroyed, nor will we proceed against him, we being the king, or, prosec or prosecute him except by the lawful judgment of his peers, the right to trial by jury, or by the law of the land, the right to due process of law, both of which come from this source and end up in the American Constitution. But it's not just an Anglo-Saxon thing. This happens all over Europe. There are dozens and dozens of these compacts that limit the powers of kings, typically by the more powerful segments of society, the barons, the church, and the cities that negotiate with the kings and say, look, you can't do that anymore. About the same time, Something happens intellectually and juridically. The doctrine of rights begins to emerge, as we would identify of dominium. Here we have Innocent IV, one of the great lawyer popes, who argues that even Muslims and Jews, although they do not accept the true faith, remember he's pope, even they have rights, and you may not harm their rights. It's a wrong thing to do. For these things are made not only for the faithful, but for every rational creature. And he cites the book of Matthew 22, also alludes to uh, Aristotle's writings as well about the rational nature of the human being. It's our autonomy that is the foundation, our right to choose. Uh, Marsilius of Padua, not a papal figure, but a supporter of King Ludwig of Bavaria against the Pope. And he talks about the way in which we have our rights because we have choice. We have human freedom of will. We are moral agents in the world, and we command the respect of each other. Now, this doctrine is articulated even further by the great figures of the School of Salamanca, very important, formative figures for the liberal and libertarian tradition. When the Spaniards come to the New World, they meet these puzzling creatures. They look like us, but when they talk, they say, bar, 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 bar. Are they humans? What should we do with them? And many people thought, well, they're just animals. 
And these figures stepped forward and defended them. Francisco de Vitoria, every Indian has free will. He's the master of his actions. It is an impious sin to force someone to allege conversion to Christianity. He was a Christian, of course. He was a man of the cloth. He was a priest. But he said to forcibly convert is a sin. You commit violence against a free person, and, very clever argument, you force him to commit the sin of hypocrisy, a double sin that falls on your head if you do it. God will punish you for this. And Bartolome de las Casas, the great figure bishop of Chiapas, who had come to the New World as an adventurer, as a young man, he had seen Christopher Columbus sail off. He said, I'm going to America. What he saw seared his soul, the cruelty visited on the Indian peoples. Horror. He wrote a book called The Devastation of the Indies that became a big bestseller in Europe, describing human beings hunted from horseback for sport by Spanish lords, and the flesh of human beings butchered and sold in butcher shops as meat for dogs. And he said, this is wicked crime. And his whole life he dedicated to the defense of the Indians. Great debate in 1550 against Juan Guinness de Sepulveda, who said, God made the Indians to be our slaves. He loves us. And Bartolome de las Casas destroyed him. And you can read the whole debate, at least his side. He wrote it all down. He utterly annihilates and stands up for individual rights and dignity. Now our next chapter, very quickly, is when the Dutch revolt against the Spanish overlords and establish a free republic. They are among the great heroes of liberty, is the Dutch uh, Republic. They pioneer religious toleration. They make it possible that actually people of different religions live together peacefully. It was considered unthinkable, and they showed it was possible. And they create the first middle-class society in human history, where the bulk of people are what we would call middle-class, not a tiny bit of wealthy elite and the vast bulk of poor people, instead a middle-class civil society. Their ideas become quite radical. They will print any book if you pay them. And many English people go and seek refuge in the Netherlands, John Locke among them, and learn from their ideas. In England, the English are having a revolution, if you will, against royal power. 1603, when the Tudor line is, is extinguished and the Stuarts are brought to the throne, King James VI of Scotland becomes King James I of England. And he's called King James VI and I because kingdoms can't be added together. He doesn't get to be James VII. And he begins to institute absolute arbitrary rule, this modern idea. And this is a key point. Absolutism. And the divine right of kings is not an ancient or medieval idea. You hear people refer to it all the time. What a medieval idea. It's not. It is a modern idea. The medieval idea was that everyone is subject to the law. The higher law is more important. The modern idea was the state is sovereign and above the law, and that the king rules directly by divine grace and divine right. Sir Edward Cook defends the rule of law and the common law above the claims of king and even parliament. That is what is most important, is the law. And now we get the first thoroughgoing libertarians in history. They're called the levelers. 
total religious freedom, including for Catholics. William Alwyn's famous essay, A Petition of the Papists, you can tell he's not a Catholic. No Catholic calls himself a papist. It's considered an insult. But he wrote in defense of the rights of the Catholics, although he was not a Catholic. These people were fervent libertarians, freedom of trade, equal rights for men and women, which is considered shocking. They were women levelers. Again, shocking. How dare women express their views on politics, unless she's the queen, in which case she has absolute power. Incoherent, in my opinion, but what they thought. Uh, equal rights for all, trial by jury. Indeed, trial by jury is a very important principle we owe to this man, John Lilburn, who refused the Star Chamber, the court, arbitrary court, and insisted on the ancient right of trial by jury. And we owe that to this man. Without him, this institution would not have persisted. He was a truly a great a human being, and he suffered terribly torture and abuse and imprisonment for his belief in liberty. Following this, John Locke and his figures who support the great a glorious revolution, we never see any official quotation in uh, 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 Locke's works to um, the levelers. But the language is quite parallel. And he had leveler writings in his library. And many of the levelers were executed, which is not the group of people you're likely to quote, uh, such as Richard Rumbold and others. But he argues, in parallel with leveler doctrines, that every man is a property in his own person. This nobody has any right to but himself. And then from that, he established property in stuff, in podiums and buildings and Macintosh computers and so on. These ideas are not, though, again, just Anglo-Saxon. The great Turgot, very important figure in French history. He uh, helped to liberate the French. He abolished compulsory labor in France, the corvée, which is how they built roads. He said, this may sound shocking, taxes are better than slavery. They used to force people, whip them to build roads. And he said, you know, the roads are not that good. And it's extremely cruel and brutal. Why don't we just levy a tax on everyone and then hire people freely, voluntarily, to build the roads? There'll be much better roads, and you don't have to whip anyone. So in some sense, that was a big advance in liberty, shift from compulsory labor to uh, taxes. He was a great friend of the American colonists and recommended limited government to them. And of course, the Americans, drawing on this tremendous tradition, establish a country predicated on equal rights. And this remarkable language, and I recommend reading the Declaration with great care. Every word in there is significant. It really was a carefully written document. Now, it wasn't, however, as Jefferson pointed out, just finding new principles. As he said, to place before mankind the common sense of the subject. Right? Neither aiming at originality of sentiment nor yet copied from any particular and previous writing is intended to be an expression of the American mind. That is a very important point. And I'll talk now about the American Revolution. John Adams to Thomas Jefferson in 1815. Very important point. What do we mean by the revolution? Most people today think of the war. That was the revolution. No. It was no part of the revolution. It was an effect and a consequence. The revolution was in the minds of the people, off, effected from 1760 to 1775. 
talks about the records of the legislatures, newspapers, pamphlets, sermons, and debates. The American Revolution was here. It was in the minds of the people. And then there was a war for independence. But those are two separate and distinguishable things. Now that movement, though, established something in motion that maybe not everyone at the time would have intended. The great Frederick Douglass, one of the most important libertarians of the 19th century, who freed himself from slavery, insisted, insisted this Declaration of Independence applies to everyone or it applies to no one. And his Fourth of July oration of 1854 is one of the most powerful moments in American political history. He challenged and shamed people. He said, what does this declaration we celebrate today mean for me and people like me? Does it not apply to us? It was a very important moment. Liberals throughout the 19th century, and Jason Kuznicki will be talking about this, struggled for free trade and peace. Some of these names may be known to you. Uh, Cobden, Bright, Bastiat, Eugen Richter, Jean-Baptiste, Frédéric Passy, very important French uh, classical liberal and uh, anti-war advocate. But liberalism receives a death blow toward the end of the 19th century. New collectivist ideologies, scientific ideologies of racism and imperialism and socialism and so on. E.L. Godkin, an American libertarian in 1900, editor of The Nation at the time, the old fallacy of divine right has once more asserted its ruinous power. And before it is again repudiated, there must be international struggles on a terrific scale. He understood what the 20th century was going to bring. It's very chilling to read these handful of old liberals at this time, such as Godkin and Herbert Spencer and others, who said this coming century will be a century of blood because we have abandoned our principles of liberty and how right they were. The 20th century, we saw murder and tyranny on an astonishing scale that had never before been seen in human history. More bloodshed in a short period of time. This last one may not be known. He gets the prize for the highest percentage of the population murdered. That's Paul Pot. There were, however, some great heroes, a few that I think deserve uh, mention. If you go to the Holocaust Museum, You'll see the memorial to uh, Hans and Sophie Scholl. Sorry, I get emotional when I think about these people who uh, told the truth about National Socialism and were immediately caught. They were betrayed and executed. Andrei Sakharov, uh, truly a brave and heroic person. There were uprisings in the Soviet Union brutally suppressed. Uh, so there were people in all of these regimes who believed in the truth. And then people who revived liberalism. Our uh, ancestors, if you will, of our movement. Think about Ludwig von Mises, Isabel Patterson, Rosewater Lane, Friedrich Hayek, uh, Ayn Rand, Milton Friedman, Luigi Einaudi, and um, ah, the great uh, author of the German Wirtschaftswunder, the finance minister's name escapes me for the moment, will come to me later. Really important figures in reviving uh, liberty in Europe and America. There are people today who have stood up for our principles, uh, classical liberals and uh, brilliant people. I mentioned Nelson Mandela there. 
a practical liberal rather than a theoretical one. And the South Africans should be very happy they got Nelson Mandela and not Robert Mugabe, a man who came out of prison with no hatred in his heart and said, we want to live together now peacefully. I think an astonishing person. So I'll just conclude with this thought that we know some of these great heroes of liberty. Uh, some of them lived long lives, like Friedrich Hayek, and others very short lives because they uh, stood up for their principles at times when it was exceptionally dangerous to do so. Uh, but not all of the heroes of liberty are known to us because I think that some of the present and future heroes of freedom are right here. And what happens in the future is going to be determined by you. So thank you very much for your time. That was a uh, very quick tour over 4,500 years of just some of the high points. Anyway, we have just a couple of minutes if anyone would like to um, pose any questions. Yes, Hi. sir. Um, you brought up several times um, how democracies in the past were taken over by more despotic states. So the uh, idea of Athens being taken over Sparta and vice versa. Well, eventually with Rome being taken over by the empire. Um, today we face a similar struggle. Zizek famously claimed that in this century we may see a reversal of the liberal trend back to the despotic trend, and many of his contemporaries have claimed the same. And you see a kind of a trend in Asia and Europe with Hungary, for example, moving into a more a freer market, but still clamping down quite aggressively when it comes to personal freedoms. In Hungary? Well, yes, the, the president there has taken... I would say despotic. absolutely not the free market. It's cronyism. Well, yeah, in China I'm saying that they're opening up more relative to at least where they were... 20 years ago? Relative to what they were 25 years ago, but not relative to what they were 10 years ago. <laughs> yes. So what's the, the, the general question is, is you, one or another inevitable? Do you think that the return, yes, to despotism? No, inevitable. I don't believe in cycles of history, and I don't believe in the inevitability. There are certain things that are ne inevitable. If you print lots of paper money, you'll destroy the currency. That's an if-then sort of statement. But the idea that liberty or despotism is somehow inevitable, that we pass through cycles, I don't think is supported by the historical evidence. There are too many occasions when the right person did the right thing at the right time and was able to save the day, if you will. When brave people stood up and said, we will not stand for this. So I think history is full of contingency. I do not think it's inevitable that our republic will collapse. It is in some sense. Over some period of time, the American Republic will cease to exist. I don't know when that's going to be. I do not anticipate it being in my lifetime, and partly I'll be damned if that's going to happen. Uh, I don't think that these things are inevitable. I'm also less pessimistic about general trends. I think China, for example, despite some of the problems, Chinese people by and large enjoy more freedom than they have enjoyed really since the Song Dynasty. It's an astonishing change. In general, I see the trend in most parts of the world very positive. Our thinking is perhaps colored by the fact that we've had a bad 10 years or 11 years in the United States. But these things can be reversed. So I'm, I'm not pessimistic. It's partly a matter of the resolution to do what needs to be done.
Hi, my name is Sarah Harvard and I go to American University. Thank you for your presentation. Um, but I've noticed that a lot of the philosophers and the figures of liberty that you mentioned are through Western civilization. And there's a lot from, I guess, the Eastern side, Ibn Khaldun naming one, Bin Tufiel. Can you speak more slowly? Sorry, Ibn, Bin Khaldun being one of them, Bin Tufiel, as well as Memonitis, who is a really prominent Jewish philosopher. My question is, um, and also, sorry to intersect, um, but a lot of them are actually huge influences to John Locke, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Thomas Hobbes. My question is that, um, what do you think Islamic society in the golden age has a role in classical liberal thought in today's standards? Yeah, oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, it's a topic we could ask my colleague, Dr. El Harmuzi, who's here, who's much more knowledgeable about these things. But I would just reinforce one of the things you said, which is that many of the important ideas that influenced Thomas Aquinas, for example, come from Averroes or I Ibn Rushd and Avicenna or Ibn Sina. So this was extremely significant for the, the development of these ideas in Europe as well. There's no question about that. Uh, the transmission to the rest of the world in the modern liberal tradition was largely through these European thinkers, feature of accident. It doesn't mean we can't find the roots again because they're clearly there. And part of the challenge for people in the Muslim world and in the Arab world, those are two intersecting but not coterminous bodies, need to do that activity of recovering that tradition. But very few people today were directly influenced by Averroes, for example. It's extremely indirect influence, but it is there without any question. In China, another great civilization, the works of Mencius, for example, and also some of the Confucian texts and Taoism are extremely rich for the, the theory and practice of liberty. So there's absolutely no question. I gave a very um, partial perspective on the story. And with more time, one could, could give a fuller picture, which is about the story of human civilization. We have time for one more. Yes, sir. Well, uh, I'm very glad you addressed natural law, natural rights, and the fundamental nature and existence of human dignity. I mean, even during lunch, I was debating a few others who were talking about how rights are derived from power or only exist so much as, so much as others acknowledge it. Uh, so my question is, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Robert George, uh, who's one of the preeminent scholars on natural law. Uh, what, what is your opinion uh, specifically on his stances on abortion and gay marriage uh, in terms of natural law? Yeah, well, I don't share his perspective at all. I mean, there's a very, not one bit. <laughs> he has a very different understanding of natural law. First, it's not natural law, it is supernatural law. He's one of the contributors to this confusion because he wants to draw from Catholic doctrine rather than Catholic doctrine drawing from the natural law tradition, which is the other way that it actually historically went. That the great Christ fathers of the Christian church thought that there was no contradiction between the beliefs or truths of faith and those of reason. And you would draw from both. He has a very faith-oriented perspective. And for example, on his views on sexuality, I consider him uh, astonishingly ignorant of the range of human experiences. And his comments on sexuality are actually, in my opinion, utterly laughable, just, just absurd. Uh, Richard Posner wrote a book partly occasioned by that on sex, sex and reason, looking at sex and the law. And he said, wow, he was really startled at the wide range of 
family life and so on that human societies have exhibited. And Robbie George has a very narrow perspective and then the arrogance to call it natural when actually it, it's drawn from a tiny slice of human experience. That's the only natural view. For instance, the view which is fine from a theological perspective, if one embraces that, that all intercourse is solely for the purpose of propagation of the species. This does not accord with a great deal of human experience, let me just put it mildly. But it's all naturally oriented towards that, and I just find that um, puzzlingly arrogant. And if he wants to maintain it as a religious doctrine, that's fine. I have no problem with people doing that. But to then claim it's a natural doctrine, and then he doesn't favor putting people in prison for sexual activities that are voluntary of which he disagrees. And I just think that's nuts, frankly. So I do not think he's a natural law thinker. He's a, theo he's a theologian. And that's a very, very different matter. But with that, we're out of time. Thank you.